back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias, when every week, every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. We go behind the lens and below the line, talking with live call-ins and sometimes studio guests of actors, writers, directors, cinematographers, sound gurus, production designers, costumers, and of course we're heading into awards season right now, so we're going to have some good stuff coming up. And also, because of logistics of talent, they can't always call in or come in to the radio station, so we get pre-recorded exclusive interviews that I sit down and do with them, either in person or on the phone. And you're going to hear... One of those in-person uh, interviews today when we talk about the film Judy. Um, but very thrilled about today's show. All of our regular listeners, if you listened in last week, Brett Cullen was supposed to be here at the midpoint of the show today. Unfortunately, I got an email last night. He's shooting today. So we swapped out the director of one of his new films, uh, which is called The Riot Act. Writer-director Devin Parks is going to be here today. Brett will be joining us next Monday along with Micah Hauptman. Uh, And it actually works out better because Joker will have come out so we can talk to Brett about Joker next week too. Uh, But I'm I'm very excited to have all of these guys who are going to be on this week and next talking about the Riot Act. This is an amazing film. It's inspired by a true story um, that occurred at the turn of the 20th century in Fort Smith and Van Buren, Arkansas. Uh, And I can't wait to talk to Devin to get the history of this murder mystery and how he turned the real story into the hypothetical what if. What if somebody that went missing after this murder, what if they really, what if they weren't dead? What if they were still running around? Uh, and he's created something. It's a real thriller. Uh, he really bra- looks into the perspectives of three different people. Uh, the perpetrator and two witnesses. And each one has a different perspective. And to see how this plays out over a period of years with a revenge theme. But one of the great things that Devin does with the Riot Act is he films everything on location. uh, And actually in these turn-of-the-century buildings uh, in Fort Smith and Van Buren, Arkansas. And I got to tell you, exquisite. The historical authenticity the beauty of the visuals. So this is going to be great fun talking to Devin at the midpoint of the show. But before then, uh, a little film that came out this weekend, and I got a bone to pick with some, with uh, KNX Radio here. Uh, they talked about this film in a surprise. This film broke the top ten and landed at number seven on the box office. Uh, Classic film fans around the world will not be surprised by this. Judy opened on Friday, and it did indeed break the top ten. It opens in the number seven slot. Uh, Number one at the box office this weekend was Abominable, and I can't encourage you enough. 
It is absolutely, the animation is spectacular. The story is charming. And for those of us who really got our first taste of an abominable snowman watching uh, Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with the Humble Bumble, um, you're going to fall in love all over again. And when you look at the animation, you can tell that the animators of Abominable were definitely influenced by the look of the Humble Bumble in Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, the beloved classic. So it's a total family film. So uh, young and old alike can go see it and you will all love it. It is marvelous. But let's talk about Judy this morning. Um, who doesn't know who Judy Garland is? Uh, is there anybody around who has not seen The Wizard of Oz at this point in their lives Every generation since 1939, I think, has, has seen this film. But what the movie Judy does is it hones in on a six-week period when she was appearing in London. She was broke. She didn't have a home. She wanted to keep her children with her. Uh, she had a notorious reputation for being late for her drinking, uh, unreliability, and let's face it, all of that takes a toll on voice. Uh, so she really was in somewhat dire straits. And she got this opportunity to go to London and do the Talk of the Town, which was a, really a glorified supper club. Uh, and very, very famous and very noteworthy. And London still loved her. She didn't have the bad baggage that was carried around in the United States. This is set during that period when she meets Mickey Deans, her final husband. It's a very tumultu emotionally tumultuous period for her. The film is written by... Who did this one? <laughs> yeah, my, my mind is going today. Uh, written by Tom Edge, and it's based on the play by Peter Quilter, End of the Rainbow. And it's directed by Rupert Gould. Rupert uh, comes out of theater. Uh, he is the artistic director of Almeida Theater in London. Uh, and this is his first feature film. But the film takes a look at this six-week period. Uh, and it was within months, few months after this time frame, that Judy Garland passed. Um, the film, on its own, beautiful. Beautiful to look at. Um, the cinematography, Olbrat Berkeland, you know his work from The Crown, Listen to Me, Marlin, American Animals, uh, and a lot of TV series. The cinematography is absolutely exquisite. There's a lot of very theatrical sweeping camera movements. The lighting is superb, and I fully believe that Ol is one of the hot contenders for Best Cinematography uh, nominations and, and award potentials this season. But, of course, the big news with this film is Renee Zellweger's performance as Judy Garland. Hand the woman the Oscar now. No female performance out there is going to top Renee's embodiment of the essence of Judy Garland. And thanks to incredible Janie... Uh, 
to Mime's incredible costuming and hair and makeup and with camera positioning and lighting by Ole, number one, you forget that this, is, that this is a performance. You become, Renee so embodies the essence of Judy Garland that there are so many moments that you think it's Judy you're looking at and listening to. She captures her wit because it's well known Judy Garland was very, very, very witty um, towards this very sarcastic end. Uh, and she brings that to life. But you also feel, you feel her sadness, you feel her sense of loss, and through the cinematography again and Rupert's direction, uh, there's a lot of metaphor going on. Um, There are a few things in the film, I'll tell you right now, classic film fans and Alicia Mayer, I know this will upset you, uh, and as the keeper of the Louis B. Mayer flame, uh, you will not be pleased by this. There are unsavory intimations about Louis B. Mayer in the film, uh, as well as th- little things that just jump out when a very young thir- 14-year-old Judy Garland is calling him LB. Uh, well known, you don't call Louis B. Mayer LB. It was Mr. Mayer. Uh, very much like Walt Disney was always Mr. Disney. Um, so little things like that are problematic. Um, but the film on the whole, superb viewing. And I do fully expect to see, this is Renee Zellweger's film. It is her Oscar. Give it to her. Old cinematography. I fully expect to see some, some awards nominations, uh, from the Academy and from, and probably the Guild. Uh, and Janie Tamim's costuming is fabulous. Uh, she's another hot contender for costume design this year. And Kavi Quinn's production design. Uh, Kavi's best known for Far From the Madding Crowd. If you haven't seen it, see it. It is beautiful. Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe shows the, the range that Kavi has uh, of designing. And also a favorite film of mine that goes back a number of years, Harry Brown. Uh, editing is sharp. Melanie Oliver does a great job with that. Um, and she knows a thing or two about timing and pacing. And that's one of the key things here because we're also talking about music. And the emotional beats of this film are, rather than expository dialogue, the emotional moments are most fully realized through song from the Judy Garland American, Great American Songbook. Uh, and you, we're going to take a listen right now to my exclusive interview with director Rupert Gould. Uh, where And we don't talk really about the content of the story because this film is so technically excellent. That's what I wanted to delve into with him. Uh, and because we had very limited time, um, those are the points I wanted to cover. So take a listen as we talk about the cinematography, as we talk about the music, the vocal and orchestral arrangements, and some little tidbits that 
we don't think about when it comes to licensing. The average person doesn't think about when it comes to licensing fees. I think a lot of producers may not even realize this with some of what uh, Rupert divulged about uh, song and styling and what it and the cost. But he talks about choosing the songs from the Judy Garland Great American Songbook, and also his experience coming in. As a, as a theater director into his first feature film, is that a help? Is it a hindrance? Uh, for my money, I think with this story, it was a definite help. But you can see for yourselves when you go to the theater and see Judy, it is playing everywhere. But right now, take a listen to Rupert Gould and I talking about Judy. Well, I must congratulate you. Oh, thank you. On this film. I had already tweeted last night after I saw the movie yesterday morning, mm. hand Renee Zellweger the Oscar now. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It, it, she's flawless. She really is. Uh, it's just so rich what she does. I hadn't seen the movie for a while until I saw it last night again, actually. And, you know, I'd just forgotten how, um, how much detail there is. And, and it feels like it's really subtle, emotional... Yes, witty, but also very vulnerable performance. Mm-hmm. And then she goes and does these huge singing numbers, and you go, "Oh wow!" You know, that's you know, you're showing a lot of range there. <laughs> well, and that's one of the great things. You have several elements of this film that are beyond standout. Yeah. The songs you selected, mm. and then the vocal and musical arrangements mm. for them, yeah, are fabulous. Yeah. They're not cookie cutter arrangements. No, yeah. But the songs you selected, I like the fact that but for two numbers, you've got upbeat songs, which, mm-hmm. of course, makes it a lot easier to, mm-hmm. quote unquote, cover mm-hmm. a song when you're reaching mm-hmm. with the range. Yeah. And plus, it really perks up. Mm-hmm. It keeps the film going, going, yeah, yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious as to how you selected the songs. Do you know, I remember we had a, a list of all the songs we might use. And, you know, it's, we were an independent movie. They had a... It was the biggest part of our budget was going on. Both licensing, yeah, (laughs) and and orchestral arrangements and, like, how long we had to record. And there was some painful, like, what are we going to cut towards the end? And so a couple of songs... We shot a couple of songs that aren't in the movie that that were uh, were great, but, you know, they were part of... Which we lost for drama reasons, but also a little bit for finance. Um, I, I felt like the best way into... The idea of Renee singing would be to sing with a... Well, and a lot of reasons I chose that song, but for a singer song that is not one of her really well-known ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by myself, it's like a kind of... It's got a story to it, it's got drama, it's got a lyric that was worked right for the, that moment in the movie, but also it allows... Renee, I think if we'd begun with The Man That Got Away or the Trolley Song or um, you know one of the, the really famous ones, uh, that might have been harder. Uh, but we tried to just choose them... You know, the... There are better songs that Renee sang better that didn't make the film because they weren't quite as uh, lyrically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, For Once in My Life is a song that I don't think I would look twice at just in hearing the songbook. But I find the way she sings it in that, in that point in the film oh, is really gorgeous. And um, I love her costume in that moment. And, uh, you know, it's a real keeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when you look at Judy Garland's, you know, mm. The Great American Songbook of Judy Garland. You could have picked anything. And my big thing is I'm listening to even the songs you have. The trolley song. It's like, oh, my God, what did it cost?
ask them for that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Rainbow is like, I remember... That is... Uh, that's that's not a cheap song, obviously, because it's an iconic song, and we had very limited usage of that, which I think we turned to an advantage because oh. you hold it and then um, you get it at the end. But... Um, uh, I remember we had a big argument about the first two notes, which to me it's like an octave interval. So I'm way, it's like you know that's that's we teach that in, in musicals. Like what's the yeah. interval? Um, and oh no, you can't do that. It's copyright. I was like, how can you copyright an octave interval? Like uh, oh so we God. had to change some of that. Um, but um, yeah, I suppose the one that I think Renee certainly if we'd started out and told her that we'd not do the man that got away, she'd have been really sad because she sings it beautifully and. Um, but that wasn't that was again an expensive one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and, and but I just I just love the songs that you mm, did choose, good. and they yeah. are emotionally yeah. appropriate yeah. from a storytelling standpoint. Yeah. But the other uh, the other big thing that really really just knocked me out of the park mm. was all the cinematography. Mm. Oh my God, Rupert! What the two of you do mm-hmm. I, when we have her in the rehearsal hall early on? Mm-hmm. The camera is coming out. She's wandering. You can tell she doesn't want to rehearse. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. she's got a hangover. She's mm-hmm. not ready. She's mm-hmm. nervous, and the light is on. That mm-hmm. spot is on. The camera's coming down, mm-hmm. and then that harsh white white light on her face. Mm-hmm. It's like. She looks like a ghost, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like a skeleton of mm-hmm. who she once was. Mm-hmm. In that moment, that defined the tone for me of the Judy that we're seeing. Uh huh. Good, good. Brilliant, oh, good. brilliant. Good. Your lighting, mm-hmm. the the camera work, your framing. Mm-hmm. I took particular note of the fact that for virtually all of the film, you've got a lot of dutching happening mm-hmm. when Judy's in conversation. Mm-hmm. Everyone is always standing mm-hmm. when she's sitting. Mm-hmm. Rosalind is standing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Young Judy, Louis B. Mm-hmm. You're dutching up. You're dutching down. Mm-hmm. It is your visual storytelling is off the charts. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. What was the process that you and all went through um. to design the visual tonal bandwidth and this visual construct? from your mm-hmm. lighting and lensing standpoint. Well, we had those anamorphic lenses which give it a sort of, uh, a kind of gorgeousness. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a film about loneliness in some ways, so some of those big wide lenses we use, making her small, uh, or being close up with the wide lens we use sometimes, so that, so that that's I guess a, a choice but um, I guess you know what I was nervous about with Ula and he, he you know I like someone with opinions <laughs> you, we didn't shoot much to most of it was single camera mm-hmm. um, and given the brevity of our shoot and the fact that our story was um, uh it's not like a thriller or something, you know. So you, I knew we were going to find a lot of it in the edit. I was nervous about coverage because... But I knew that if we committed to the single camera and the way we were going to shoot. And, and sometimes, like, taking our time on the lighting, we would get the richness. And that's what I really love is the colour richness, mm-hmm. the sort of the palette. You know, it's partly the other... You know, the cave and Jenny, the costume and... Um, 
production designers as well, but committing to those kind of intense kind of Wizard of Oz colours mm-hmm. uh, f- felt like, you know, maybe at some some level, you know, the quality of light can sometimes make up for the um, economic um, mm-hmm. limitations of scale. Um, uh, so so that so, so we talked a lot about color palette and all about light, and in terms of framing, uh, I mean that stuff you were talking about. I mean, in part there was a practical thing about trying to sell. I mean, Renee is small, but I mean, Judy was tiny. So you're you're often trying to kind of find uh, a physical relationship with the performers that's going to mm-hmm. give give credibility to that. Um, but it also it helps so much in defining where she is at this point of her life, where yeah. everybody lords everything over her she they are all in a power position yeah 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 until we see she finally is on the same plane with sid yeah 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 in the bar yeah she now has money yeah yeah, we're talking very few moments where she's on a level playing field yeah i think also i'd had a um I suppose the first film, I, you know, I'm really not very experienced in making movies <laughs> or, or, or camera work. So, I, you know, I'm still really, I feel like I'm learning uh, a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, I wanted to, the first feature I made, uh, 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 there are things I like in it, but one of the things, partly to do with the nature of how the screenplay had been constructed and partly to do with practical things that happen and partly just to do with editorial choices around what the content was. But it, it's sort of cuttier than... I can see it's over. It's overcutting in places, mm. and uh, so almost to a fault, we tried to commit to longer takes, mm-hmm. longer single takes with, with this film. And you know, to do that, you have to. One of the, the, the most important prerequisites you've got to have actors who are on it, because you've got to yes rehearse, but also trust that they're going to hold in their tempo as well the mm-hmm. the, the pacing you're, you're dictating and also the. The integrity of the acting. So, so for example, that scene with Rufus and um, Renee in the pub at the in the, yeah, the second half, the, the, the two shot, the wide two shot. For my taste, I would have played the whole scene like that. It's, it was so gorgeous, and they, they it was literally the color palette is gorgeous, but their performances were exceptional through the mm-hmm. whole take and seeing them held. I loved it. I it was like something a Steve McQueen thing, but. Um, it was a bit long, so we, we, we can also because they did great work in in the title coverage. Uh, but but you rely on your performers above all for mm-hmm. that. Um, the opening shot, you know, which is like a you know actually when you start super tight on Darcy's face like that, and then that's a developing you know um, crane shot, a little bit showy probably, a little bit like if I had my time again, there are things I'd change about the staging of it, all the, t- the amount of time we had to set it up. But you know, irrespective of the the um, shortcomings of Uda in my work that's still Richard and Darcy word perfect for three minutes mm-hmm. on quite a complex sequence um, and uh, I love that, that you use the crane yeah because I mean MGM yeah. noted for their crane work yeah 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 in their filming yeah and actually do you know what the, that shot developed beyond where we cut uh, in fact a friend of mine a filmmaker friend of mine said you should use the whole single take and I was like it's just a little bit too long um <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I just, I just think, you know, that a shot like that's complicated for the focus, particularly. And uh, there was, there was one move, and we lost two hours of the afternoon trying to get the. There was a, it was a move in and out, which mm. was really dynamic. We just couldn't get the. It just looked too jerky because we were coming mm. coming out too quickly. And uh, I mean, ultimately, you just don't know that until you've got the crane rigged, and yeah. and, and that's where, you know, the 
the schedule on an independent movie for 10 million is, is not, you know, we should have spent, we could have spent three days on that shot to get it really yeah. great. Um, and actually what would have been lovely is to do it and then be able to go back and see the rushes that night and go, what's really, is the text here, you know. I mean, I still, I, I like, I'm really proud of it, but, um, yeah, and that, the, the jib up where you see the yellow brick road, mm-hmm. that's kind of cute, I think. How beneficial do you, because of the way this is staged, how beneficial do you think it is you coming out of theatre to do this particular film? I think um, there, there, are, there are things that I insisted on that the producers couldn't really understand that I think I was really right about to do with... Um, I can remember saying, look, this... When I said, we're not going to have a sing until by myself... I said the, that sequence from the beginning of the band playing that night through to her bef- finishing that song, that is our action sequence. This is like a car chase for this movie. And everything about that character has to carry that sequence. And they were like, why are we shooting stuff about her turning up at the theatre? Why are we shooting her stuff coming down the corridor? Like, we, you're not going to cut all that. You're going to cut to her being on stage. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's the drama. The backstage onto the... the, the, the gladiatorial quality uh, now I knew that because I've been around performers and I know what that purgatorial walk is mm-hmm. um, so, so there's experience stuff absolutely about performing um, in terms of actually uh, staging um, I guess a little bit I guess a little bit um, things like what a thrust stage is which is unique to talk of the town and that that built out mm-hmm. like what it does to the camera angles but also what it does to the performer actor relationship that really helped i mean just literally being in a big theater i just felt okay i'm at home here and no i know what that is um but they really are different art forms you know they just are and um uh of course there's huge overlap before act directing actors dramaturgy design sensibility aesthetic what's the vision but beyond that I mean you know the camera is like a sort of um, it's such a complicated limitless toy mm-hmm. that you don't have in theatre it's like theatre you, you tell the whole story but like it's like uh, you know with only one leg so you, that leg becomes really strong but you don't have, you get a, you get the camera it's like oh my god and it's um I, you know, I feel I'm still learning about that. Um, I guess what what is what I find also fundamentally interesting is the kind of stories I tell on stage are quite different to the stuff I've done on screen. And my approach is different. Like I think that uh, theatre is about fundamentally about argument. It's mm-hmm. about an audience going to go away and talk about what they've seen. I thought that. I thought that. Argue, argue, argue. And, you know, of course, it's inhabited through character, but your job as a theatre director is to make as visual and dynamic and gripping that argument. Whereas I think film is, is more of a medium of character. It's about what happens in someone's eyes and soul. Like, like there's something about the magic of the close-up that is, you just don't have in theatre, like the rationing of that and the significance of that. And the edit, you know, I, I just... Um, that's the whole... That's the bit I, weirdly, I think, is closer to theatre. And that was Rupert Gold talking about Judy. And I love his distinction between uh, theater and film. I think it's one of the most beautiful and perfect distinction, uh, descriptions I've ever heard. Um, 
And again, Renee Zellweger, Judy Garland, hand her the Oscar people. Standout, Jesse Buckley. She plays Rosalind Wilder. Rosalind Wilder was the, the producer slash liaison, Judy's quote-unquote handler for the talk of the town. Rosalind Wilder is very much still alive, and she became a source for Jesse to tap into, for Rupert to tap into, um, and Jesse's perfor- take on Rosalind is really wonderful to watch. While it's very hard to take your eyes off Renee Zellweger, um, take a gander and watch Jesse Buckley's performance as Rosalind Wilder. Finn Whitrock as Mickey Deans, I'm still not convinced. Sorry, I love Finn. Um, I love his work. He's got a lot of films coming up over the next three months uh, that will be hitting the theaters. But there's just I'm just unconvinced with him as Mickey Deans. Rufus Sewell as Sid Luft is magnificent. Um, Richard Cordery as Louis B. Mayer. The performance is fine, but it is the presentation of Mayer that I question that I find somewhat distasteful in this film. And I think a lot of film, uh, classic film fans may come back with the same uh, kind of reaction. Um, have to talk about Darcy Shaw. Up and comer, she plays young Judy Garland. Her performance is wonderful. However, when you look at her, she could be a double for a young Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, this is one area where I think we fell down with hair. Um, she has jet black hair, uh, as young Judy. And as everybody knows, Judy Garland did not have jet black hair at that point in her life. Um, and thanks to the Wizard of Oz and the magic of Technicolor, we all know that. Uh, but it's little things like that. Uh, but the performances on the whole are all fantastic and of course all led by Renee and by Rupert's very keen direction of this story so whenever AT&T gets my internet solution resolved I will be able to post my review and uh, other good things on Judy for all of you to read Uh, so but right now we are going to move on to our wonderful, our wonderful and very historically oriented guest today, Devin Parks. Hello, Devin. Welcome. Hi, Debbie. It's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you. Um, and I get you a week earlier. That's right. Yeah, I was, uh, I was able to, to swap times with uh, one of our other Well, because, well, you know, this is what happens when when you're working with somebody like Brett Cullen. The man is always, he's always, I'm surprised he had time to shoot your film. (laughs) Brett's a wonderful guy, and uh, we were lucky to have him, but on just a personal level, but also, uh, you know, someone of of his range um, and, and just his level of talent and experience. Yeah, we were very fortunate, and um, I'm I'm very uh, grateful that he he liked the script the way that he did, and, and was excited to play the part. Well, I I am just I love this film. I love the history behind the film. 
Uh, I love how you thought outside the box to expand on this story. And then I love the fact that you shot this in all of these wonderful historical locations. Uh, I mean, they're all in the National Registry. Um, you've got mm-hmm. Old Smith Hospital. You've got the Clayton House. You've got the King Opera House. Uh, just incredible. If for no other reason, if the if the story was not as good as it is, if the film is not as good as it is, a reason to see this film is just to see all of these historical places in Arkansas that most of us will never ever see in our lifetime up close. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm. Uh, you just blew my mind with that. You really did, Devin. But I'm curious. This well, I, I appreciate that. This started with um, you had done the sh- you had done the short film about uh, mm-hmm. step into the King Opera House, correct? That's right. And that is where you you know you talk about Char- Colonel King, uh, who brought uh, who had a theater. And then Dr. Parchman, here we have Brett playing a Dr. Perot. Uh, the vaudeville was brought to Van Buren. And then it takes off from there with the history of the, with the King Opera House involved. Because Dr. Parchman didn't really want his daughter running off with, it, with you know, a no good actor. Uh, mm-hmm. So... How did you learn? Is this a story that you grew up knowing? Did you were any court records available going back to 1902 and three? I'm curious how mm-hmm. how you found out about this, and then what made you take it to the next step and make a feature. Sure. Yeah, it's, a, it's really a fascinating story, and the town where we shot it, being in Arkansas, I grew up there, uh, and so I I've known about how deep the historical roots go. I mean, the main street that we shot this on, uh, I, I don't want to discredit in any way our art department. They worked tirelessly days and nights to come in and transform that street. But when you walk down the street as it stands today, dysfunctioning in 2019, um, it is so immaculately restored to how it stood 100 years ago. Wow. Uh, and it's a, it's a pride and joy of the town and it's such a big tourism draw uh and so growing up here it's always looked that way and i remember specifically as a child uh, we would take tours to some of these famous uh you know historical venues they've got some old gallows that were uh known very uh infamously known uh in fort smith which is right across the bridge we would take trips to the king opera house and all these really beautiful uh, historical locations as kids. And I remember hearing specifically when we were in the, in the King Opera House as a kid, you would always hear about the ghost, which I, I found out later in life that every famous opera house, theater uh, that, that's worth anything has some kind of ghost story, ghost mm-hmm. tale of, of its own. Um, and I specifically remember, you know, as a kid, that's the most fascinating thing about walking into these venues, specifically the King Opera House, there's a ghost here every kid in the class knew it. And it was always intriguing to me. And then as I started to um, pursue storytelling and filmmaking later in life, uh, I always wanted to find stories that were local to my area because I knew of the, the richness uh, in history that was still around. And I, I never had any specific desire to 
to operate in a historical or a period, or I, I hesitate to say Western because that's more than just um, a time period, but to operate in that style. Um, however, some of the greatest stories uh, that I could find or that I knew of growing up uh, were set at the turn of the century or around that time. Uh, and it was around that time when I, when I developed my love for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found um, some of the history within the King Opera House when I did step into uh, short. Uh, it was just, it was very fascinating. And, and what they attributed the ghost to was uh, this particular incident that happened with Dr. Parchman, um, with is the actual uh, the actual name of the doctor, and, and it is that is listed in in court records and mm-hmm. and census records in Van Buren. Um, and the the true incident that happened uh, was that he uh, he was a prominent doctor in the area, and his daughter fell in love with a traveling actor that was coming in, a vaudeville actor. Uh, they were putting on shows, and at that time, that acting profession was very frowned upon in society. It was a dirty profession, and it wasn't something that held any kind of the respect uh, wh- for the celebrity that it does nowadays. Well, I think and, it's uh, I think it still has some of the same connotations today, depending on who we're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it did. It held this stereotype, and um, when the you know the prominent doctor's daughter did fall in love with. So a fall prey to the desire of, of wanting to pursue this, this actor. Um, and then, you know, some speculation that maybe it was more of a lifestyle. Maybe she didn't want to fall into the medical profession as was common and expected of her. Uh, and just a typical um, or stereotypical rebellious teenager mm-hmm. who wanted to pursue this actor and father didn't want to. Um, society didn't want her to. And... It was, as the story, the true story goes, as the court documents state, and as several historians in the area have uh, researched extensively, mm-hmm. um, one evening they made plans to, to skip town on one of the late trains, and the doctor caught wind of it. Um, he caught wind of it through a lot of interesting stories that are, are all speculation at this point, but other friends of the doctor who may have been themselves interested in his own daughter and, and uh, knew of her trying to flee, and so therefore they would rather spoil her plans than see her go for good. Um, a lot of speculation and a lot of different stories that surrounded, but it resulted in the, the doctor um, meeting the two of them at the depot that night, um, trying to stop them, and afterwards not being able to uh, persuade them. And so he used the only means necessary uh, or the only means that he could at that point, um, which was to kill the actor. And kind of going back to the, the the society standards of that time, there are court documents where the doctor stood trial for the murder um, and against overwhelming evidence, against overwhelming testimony, uh, was acquitted for the murder. And <laughs> it really echoed the societal standards at that time and who he was and what he had contributed to society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, to kind of get into your second question, I, I kind of, I looked at that as, that, that's, that's, I mean, that was over 115 years ago when right. this happened, and the, the court documents don't go further than that. And we, we, there are some family members still alive, some that I've spoken with, and um, that don't know much more than even some of the greatest historians around here do. Uh, but it just made me wonder, how much really could have developed under those societal standards, under the, the influence that this doctor had in this town, 
and really how that could have played out otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took that true event, um, and I basically questioned what what would have happened if his daughter would have continued on that train. Um, if she happened to be the only other witness to what had happened, and if she had left town, then what could have what could have happened after that? And to kind of tie that all back into the ghost story that I heard when I was a kid, I always speculated why. Why did they believe it was that ghost? What 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 is that attributed that ghost there? They believe that he's it's the it's the spirit of this young actor who resides at the last place he remembered seeing Allie or his, his, the, the doctor's daughter. And uh, so therefore that's where he came to haunt. And I thought it was fascinating uh, that that's the particular murder, that's the particular victim that was attributed to that ghost. And I wanted to know how did, how did the origin of this ghost come about? And that's where I then built the entire narrative. That was uh, a narrative involving only three people the only three people who witnessed the events that took place that night. And, and I, I basically created a story that no one else would have ever known about unless mm-hmm. they were to see it in the ride act. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you had, I mean, I was so intrigued and so I, I just could not look away from the screen. Number one, because it, I mean, it, it looks fabulous, but I was riveted to this story and have you and how you have it unfolding because we have the events of that night happen then you you skip forward two years and we're we're back and there's the good doctor as hoity-toity as ever and full of himself um you you add a few fun fun things in there like morphine addiction and which quite commonplace for those that had money, and especially in the medical profession um, mm-hmm. of the time. Very believable little aspects. And then we have a traveling company come in to the theater uh, mm-hmm. with an extravaganza. and But then we see another character who was around at the time, two years earlier. Mm-hmm. And he's a steel yeah. worker. And he, you know, he's built the trusses and everything in the stage. And then you pepper us with some really fun characters, like Micah Hauptman's character of Cyrus Grimes, uh, the theater, the troupe empresario, so to speak. Um, he's mm-hmm. hilarious. And I got to say, kudos to your costume designer, because that jacket that he wears the whole time is fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. He's not only wonderful. You know, Micah brought, you know, when you write a character like this, you, you either write it have someone very specifically in mind, or you've got to leave it open to interpretation for whoever comes in and plays that. And uh, I don't know if you, I mean, you, you, whether you know it or not, you've probably seen Micah uh, several in several of their films and just never really pinned him. Oh, um, I adore, I adore Micah. I followed him for years. He's done the show before. He's been on this show before. Yeah, definitely. Uh, happy, really. Yeah. Uh, for a tiny That's little nice. a tiny little film uh, called a little rom com bread and butter, he did our show uh, about four years ago. But I and I That's was so fantastic. thrilled to get him because I have admired his work for so long, much like Brett Collins' He's work. So talented. Yeah, I. Yeah. And you know that that with Micah when we saw Micah uh, his his read for this project, I kind of felt the same way. I thought this guy. I never would have pictured initially 
playing this role. And he was the, he was one of the few um, in kind of that typecast genre that, mm-hmm. that he played, that he generally played. Yep. That he, he was he was a standalone in the pile of actors that we were considering at the time. And when we saw his read, I just I had to talk to him more about it because I was curious at his approach. Um, and I'll never forget Mike's first day on set. Um, and it was it was interesting. He had been working on a project. He I think he was awake for 36 hours straight after wow. flights to Van Buren. And he came in and he was he felt he felt like he hadn't been able to devote everything he wanted to to the character. He and I had a conversation before we went on for his, his first scene. And I'll never forget him coming off stage. We shot one of the the bits on stage with him first. Uh-huh. And he came off stage, and I was so moved by the, his approach to the character. I I, I felt at that point um, that the camera was going to love him and that he really might be a standout. And I think he, his performance speaks for himself. I'm so happy with how he played it. Oh, my God. And having seen him, I cannot picture anybody else in that role. He tr- yeah, he truly either. makes Cyrus his own, and mm-hmm. it's so distinctive. Uh, but it also adds, you know, it, it's a nice little bit of semi levity in certain moments mm-hmm. um, that counters the darker aspects of the true, the underlying true story. Uh, and here, mm-hmm. I mean, you knock it out of the park again with your casting. Besides Micah, besides Brett, Lauren Sweetser as Allie, Dr. Perot, Dr. Perot's daughter, and then Connor Price. We're going to see more yeah. from him. Boy, oh boy. He, yeah. he I, I is. I echo that. Um, oh. nearly everyone about Connor. He's, he truly is a, he's pretty um, outstanding in everything that I've seen him in. And there's an interesting little story about Connor. He was, I think he was on another show at the time, and he was late getting his audition in. Mm-hmm. And he submitted to Liz Barnes, our casting director, late. We had already decided on uh, who was going to play August in the film. And she called us up one day and said, listen, I've got one that came in late. He was one of the first people I went out to, but uh, he's been busy. Uh, she said, you really need to watch it. And we even told her, like, we would appreciate it, but, you know, we're already locked in, and we just don't know if we'll have time or, or the ability to, you know, to back out of that. Mm-hmm. And we sat around a table and watched Connor's audition uh, and immediately uh, started unwinding what had been done at that point uh, to, to get Connor locked into that role. Unfortunately, we hadn't gone too far. We hadn't made an offer or, or you know, uh, gone back to an actor who we wanted. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, we weren't far enough in to where we were able to lock Connor in. He, he really exemplified a lot of the mystery the subtleness and the ambiguity of that role mm-hmm. that I that I wanted to see, and I knew uh, I knew within the first watch that he was going to be perfect for it. And I uh, he, he nailed the role in the end. When I look at it, I look at it. And I say the same thing about him. He's going to he's going to have a long and successful career ahead of him. I believe it. Well, you know, one of the great things with these characters, and you know, you mentioned the ambiguity, and that's one of the great things about how you develop this story. Because you go into this story thinking, okay, doctor shoots actor. Daughter runs off on the train anyway. Nobody hears from her again. Guy gets acquitted. Actor is dead and often in Potter's Field or something somewhere. Um, But then things start happening amongst these characters. And while you're so sure of, you know, oh, 
you feel bad for the daughter. It's like, oh, my God, dad was overbearing. Dad was a pain in the butt. She had to get away. Oh, you know, he broke her heart, killing the love of her life. Your mind goes there. But then you craft this and take us on a, an actual, it's really a who done it and who's doing it. Because then you bring your ghost story in. And throughout the film, as I'm watching it, you're seeing everybody's perspective. And your point of view is changing as to, okay, who you're empathizing or sympathizing with. Allegiances go back and forth among the characters as you watch this. And I find that so compelling, Devin. Uh, it, it's not something you normally see. Generally, it's like, okay, you know who the good guy is, you know who the bad guy is, you know what happened, and, sure. you know, you know that you're going you're gonna to root for Rambo. No matter if he kills 300 people, you're going to root for Rambo. That's not what we have here. One minute you can yeah, be... I thought it was important. Oh, it just... I, I thought it was important to have, you know, three different perspectives of the same event, and these are the only three perspectives. Yeah, and not only to see how those develop, but also to see um, the motivations of the characters that they're developing from, and how they and, intersect. And exactly, and how they intersect. And I thought that even as a viewer, you're looking at uh, this deeper dialogue within yourself. Of uh, you may you may agree with some or all or none um, of the perspectives of the development in, in those motivations within these three characters. And I think that that's what some of that internal conflict comes from. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted you to walk out of the theater. I want you to walk away from your TV set. Uh, an argument would be nice between who you think did the right thing. Yeah. who you thinks motivations initially were pure, who though their motivations may have been wrong, still was on um, a more pure path towards a resolution. You know, I just thought I, I wanted it to be, a discussion of those perspectives, and I thought that it would create uh, an internal conflict, which I thought would it would be nice to um, to bring up that discussion of how how would you respond in the same situation or a similar situation. Mm-hmm. No, very very well done with your with your construct and your crafting of that. But you got to talk to me about you reteam with your cinematographer Travis Joyner. You and Travis have done a number of shorts together mm-hmm. here the two of you you make the leap into a narrative feature a full-length narrative feature um the visual your visual tonal bandwidth is outstanding we have that mm. umber wash that candlelight kind of wash to a bulk of the film you you use dutching which works so well um you've got some ecus happening generally on brett cullen's character of dr perot um, you've got great metaphor happening, uh, with the camera and the close-ups on him as it has you wondering, is he descending into madness? What is happening? Is he drugged out? Is he guilty? You know, what it makes the mind real and you use the camera and your lighting to that effect. And then of course you showcase these beautiful, beautiful locations such as the Clayton house um, and the theater it's and you know the the King Opera house so I'm mm-hmm. curious what were what were the considerations you and Travis had in developing your visuals shot listing storyboarding what, what and what kind of look were you and feel were you going for 
Sure. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought up the ECU specifically with Brett and the way that we shot, uh, excuse me, Dr. Perot, the way that we shot Dr. Perot. Um, and we did. We wanted to stay, we wanted to keep a certain level of, um, of lens structure with Perot in that but there's always something behind his eyes that I was wanting yeah. you to see. There, there are multiple times in the film that we're, we don't really know what his true motivation is or what his true uh, what his, his true directive is at the time. And I thought that we would really be able to explore that appropriately, shooting Brett or shooting Dr. Perot in a lot in a lot tighter shots, um, in a lot more singles um, than including him. Uh, with with the other characters in shots. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the actual lighting packages and the lens packages that we that Travis shot on, uh, really was you know you hear a lot about using natural light or using practicals. In this scenario, we really did. We specifically chose a lens. You'll have to forgive me, Travis. We'll be able to speak better on that. Oh, that's the, okay. Uh, specifications, but the the lenses that we used were uh, were, were vintage lenses. Uh, they had they had their own qualities to them that played to the era that we were shooting in. And when it comes to lighting, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about shooting on natural lighting. Um, in, in our scenario, we shot, we tried to shoot um, hand in hand with our art department in deciding what were the practicals at the time, mm-hmm. um, what were light sources like at the time. When you sat in an opera house um, that only illuminated the opera house by foot lighting, yep. how does that then, then reflect your audience? You know, we, we want... It wasn't. It wasn't so much about using a lighting package uh, that minimized the light that we used, or that made people believe that it was it was shot on natural light. We wanted we wanted the appearance inside those buildings to appear as it did at that time. Mm-hmm. Specifically, um, when you walk in and sit down in a restaurant nowadays, if you would have sat down in that restaurant a hundred years ago, your experience is different because the way that it's lit, the way that mm-hmm. it's exposed and illuminated, is very different. And and those are those are storytelling ways to really bring people into the time period that you're in. And the time period itself was such a character in this film that that was important. Um, and in addition to, to the, again, working hand-in-hand with our art department, uh, the locations that we used, we were just in a, in a, in a, in a location in a, uh, or a, uh, in a town that really allowed us to take advantage of what they take so much pride in mm-hmm. uh and it, it's funny it, after what well, once we had already wrapped shooting uh was when we finally realized that every location that we shot in as a primary set um was in fact on the historical registry um and you know it lends mostly to i grew up here i grew up in this town and and so i had a vision for the character, uh, for, the, for the sets as an actual character in the film. I, I never wanted an actual Western town. Mm-hmm. I wanted that more modern turn of the century, which is very, very different. Most people yes. don't understand that. Very different. Um, and so I was able to use um, just the, the, the knowledge and the, the connections that I had personally after growing up here to go in and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to just create and build our own sets because that's not what we want. We want the authenticity of being able to shoot as we stood hundred mm-hmm. years ago, and, and some of them, King Opera House, the train depot, that actually played a, a role in the story that it was yeah. inspired by. Uh, you know, we, we shot on the actual grounds where this murder took place, uh, and that, that lent a certain level of authenticity for our cast. I remember Brett, uh, when Brett's first day on set, you know, Brett agreed to, to shoot a, 
a low budget period film. And he, though he loved the script, he had his expectations coming in. And I remember having a conversation with him, <laughs> um, standing on Main Street with uh, six blocks of dirt laid down and um, livestock on the streets and eight different wagons and horse-drawn conveyances uh, lined along that road. Uh, and, he, you know, he, he said it himself. Mm-hmm. You really don't have to act you're living a part uh, in the world that it happened. And that, um, I, I offer our department to, to the, the visionaries behind that and the filmmaking team as a whole. I mean, it's, um, it's, we all work together to create something that, that felt authentic and something we're all really proud of. You know, we're almost out of time today, but I've got to ask you, because you were shooting in all these locations that are part of the, of the historic regi- National Historic Registry, how difficult was it? Did you have to, you know, were you limited in how much equipment you could bring in? Or did you have to lay in a false wall here or there, wherever you were going to have cameras or some kind of protection? I'm curious, because I know I've encountered other filmmakers who have run into this before. And they've actually had to rebuild and create like a false wall um, to keep lighting from actually hitting, uh, you know, possibly... Mm-hmm you know, fading out draperies and things that are a hundred years old. So I'm curious for your experience. Uh, we were fortunate in that we never had to build any, we never had to replicate sets. Now we did have to, um, you know, you, when you come into one of these, when you come into a museum like this, which in all of these places as listeners are technically museums of mm-hmm. how they stood. And when you come in, you have to come in with a certain level of respect and you have to come in with a certain level of credibility that we know how to handle. You know, you, you can't, on a traditional set, you can't just scoot a dolly track across the floor because yeah. you're working on 100-year-old flooring. Um, so I was fortunate in that most of the team that I had worked with in the past, we had experience shooting them. Uh, we had done two historical uh, shorts uh, in the Step Into series ahead of this, and I had, I had a little bit of a reputation on how we could respect and protect those elements. Mm-hmm. That being said, it definitely posed challenges. I mean, there were certain areas, you know, you can't just, uh, in, in this case, you can't just knock a hole in a wall and hang a light and right. then patch it later. It's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more difficult. So we were limited at times. But again, I think that falls into, um, it, it's a unique uh, problem that kind of falls into the, the realm of independent filmmaking and in that a lot of times you're restricted by budget. Um, and so you have to figure out a creative way to make the shot happen. And in return, sometimes it makes it better. And in this scenario, uh, there were several times where we wanted to shoot. Um, specifically, we wanted to, we wanted a, a, a shot coming down the stairs um, towards Dr. Burrell, which mm-hmm. was in his house at the time. We were really seeing the realm. And it ended up we couldn't get the shot we wanted, um, so we, we resulted to a wider shot from up the stairs. And in the end, it's a more beautiful shot than I think we initially <laughs> wanted. So we did have our restrictions, but I think, um, you know, I think every project that you work on is a – it's a living and breathing piece. And I think if we were to shoot the whole thing over again now, it looked completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that we captured it in the moment was uh, the way and, and the proper uh, integrity for the film at that time. And, and yeah, you look at those, you look at those scenarios and just say, this is, uh, this is how it was supposed to be. Uh, we, we can't run a camera through the wall. So we're not going to, we're going to find an alternative. <laughs> so where can everybody see, the Riot Act, when and where? It's coming on October 8th. 
It will be available on all video on demand, most video on demand platforms, Apple TV, Amazon, um, iTunes, Vudu, Google Play, um, any, pretty much anywhere and everywhere you can get your video on demand. Uh, it'll be available October 8th. Um, we do have, we have a lot of iTunes extras features that you can, um, you can access only through a purchase on Apple TV or iTunes that we highly recommend. It, it has some of these same uh, discussions that we've had today um, on the, you know, the use of the historical building mm-hmm. and what it was like shooting there and you know, some of our cinematography choices, things like that, and interviews with Brett and uh, myself, Travis, and, and our, our Connor and Lauren. So, uh, but yeah, it's available everywhere on VOD, October 8th. And uh, we're excited for people to finally get to see it outside of theaters. And they can also go to riotactmovie.com and see some incredible behind-the-scenes photos on there. That's correct. I was already there looking, and they all look fabulous. So... Well, thank you. <laughs> oh, Devin, thank you. This has been a real joy talking to you today. Um, this is the kind of film Absolutely. that not too many people make. And to get to talk to you about steeping us in history with the Riot Act is uh, is amazing. And the fact that you sh- the authenticity that you put into this film, uh, it, it comes through on screen loud and clear. And the film is... It elevates the film exponentially. This does not look like a low-budget, no-budget indie film. This easily looks like and feels like a $20 million plus film. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, all of our cast and crew will appreciate that, too. We, uh, you know, we didn't want anything to limit us or hold us back, and we didn't want anyone to be able to identify it as an indie film. So that's a tremendous compliment to, uh, to everyone involved, and it's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you, Debbie. Oh, and I hope you'll come back on the show with another project. Anytime you'll have me. And you got an open invitation, Devin. Open invitation. <laughs> Devin, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye. And, um, okay, why isn't my button going off, Pam? Okay, for whatever reason, our our phone button is not going off. It's still lit red, and I don't know why. But that that Pam can fix that. That's not my problem. Um, That is all the time we have today. Huge thanks to Devin Parks. Fascinating hearing about how, you know, he he brought a still standing 1903 Fort Smith and Van Buren, Arkansas to life in this film and the story behind it. This film, the Riot Act, it is out VOD digital on October the 8th. See it, see it, see it. And next week we will have Brett Cullen and Micah Hauptman here talking about the Riot Act and. Yes, you can be sure I'm going to ask Brett about Joker. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 